Hello, I'm Andrew Mayle, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club, a place where music lovers, musicians, crate diggers, writers, readers, and special guests get to share their love for classic albums, weird lost gems, brand new revelations. My guests today are REM guitarist and songwriter Peter Buck and Mojo editor John Mulvey. Hello. Hello, Andrew. Now, you'll notice from that response that Peter is not here in the room right now. I actually caught up with him earlier in the week to talk a bit about his new album with famous art pop curmudgeon Luke Haynes, but mostly to back and forth with him about his love for Laura Nero's eternally beguiling and cryptic 1968 LP, Eli and the 13th Confession, an album that initially appears to be this regular pop soul record, but then gradually reveals itself to be anything but. Peter was absolutely fascinating, and it was one of those instances where someone opens up an album for you and reveals all of its inner intricacies. So if John doesn't mind, I'm going to step into another room, have a chat with Peter, then come back to talk about two of Mojo's favourite albums of the week. I'm Andrew Mayle, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club. Pilgrimage, composed by Barry Buck Mills Stipe from the 1983 REM album Murmur. Peter, I'm, the first thing I need to say is I'm absolutely delighted that you were willing to do this. I'm really pleased for two reasons. One, because um, I think you've chosen an amazing album to talk about, um, Laura and Iroh's Eli and the 13th Confession. But also, firstly, I want to talk about the new album that you've been that you've worked on. Um, it's a collaborative album. It's the second album that you've recorded with Mr. Luke Haynes of the Auteurs and Black Box Recorder after 2020's Beat Poetry for Survivalists. It's called Why Are All the Kids Super Bummed Out? And the kids are all super bummed. Ah, yeah. There's no why because we know why. Oh, <laughs> or maybe the answer is in the record. The, the, this is kind of the, the, the record provides the answer. The kids are all super bummed out. And to these ears, it would appear to be a particularly kind of occult British punk psychedelia. I heard bits of the Bevis Frond in there. I heard the adverts. I heard the soft boys. I mean, I know you've both been interested in each other's music since the early 90s. But how did you how did you finally meet up? How did that come about? I was I was on a you know, I, I don't. I'm not one of those people who goes on the computer much, but every now and again, I'll go to a, a music site or a political site. And usually the political ones make me angry, but the music ones are okay. Yeah. And one of, one of the music sites mentioned that Luke was selling paintings and I just emailed him and said, Hey, you know, I'm interested. How do I take care of this? And a few weeks later he wrote and, and suggested we work together. He tells me that at the time I said, yeah, I'm pretty busy. I don't know. But I seem to remember that I was exactly in the middle of making a record and the idea of committing to doing something else was really intense. But, you know, two weeks later, yeah, I was a little more free and I, I sent him uh, kind of a semi-finished track. Uh, essentially, the entire record is chronological in the order I sent him stuff. Yeah. So Jack Parsons was the first song. Yes. And 
what is it about? I mean, because you're, I mean, you're very much fans of each other's stuff. What is it about Luke's lyrics, his songwriting, and his delivery that appeals to you? What, what, what kind of mean? Because he is a, he's a unique musician. There are kind of you, you hear that voice and you know who it is. So, what, what was it particularly about his, you know, his unique style that appealed to you and made you want to work with him? I had his first, uh, the Uchur's first record, um, New Wave. Uh, yeah. As a promo cassette in like 94 and it was just a, you know classic songwriting yeah um you know it's some, a couple of songs remind me of like a really good ray davies song very um, much so yeah but you know he pretty quickly moved away from that and uh i like just the, the grounds he, t he touched there's certainly i could hear kraut rock in there and there's almost an entire glam record right so you know, it, it never would have occurred to me to write the guy to ask to write songs together, but he brought it up and it was like, well, I've got songs. I mean, I, he, he writes like I do kind of all the time and pointlessly, like some people smoke cigarettes just one after the other. Yeah. And I, you know, I just this morning I got back one I sent him last week. You know, we're, we're still trying to come up with more songs. So it's just an outlet for both of us. And at some point, I kind of realized it doesn't have to have any shape or structure or form. I'll send him something, he'll figure something out. Yeah. And are you, who's kind of sparking it off? Are you sending him musical ideas first? Is he sending you lyrics? I mean, or does it work both ways? You know, I've never written to to lyrics that someone's given me. Yeah. I mean, I've sat in a room with people who have lyrics and you, you do that, but if someone sent me a printed page, I'm not even sure how to go about doing that. Yeah. Um, so it's I was, Scott McCoy, who I work with in every band I'm in pretty much has a home studio in the basement. And generally once a week I go over and record something new of mine, maybe work on something new of his, um, work with you know people send me stuff so this working through the mail thing is not that unusual for me back in the 70s it was like oh you got to send a learjet for the guy and put him at you know <laughs> at the ritz and get a bunch of cocaine and a hundred thousand dollar guitar and do the session but you know now it's like hey want to plan this yes go ahead and send it to me and it's kind of freeing because it's not like being in a real studio we don't get charged by the hour you know, I usually will give people kind of what they want and then some things that they haven't asked for. Usually a little bit more noisy or, or disruptive. Um, so it's an interesting process, you know. It feels like much more of a collaborative sound than the first one, which, I, I mean, I like beat poetry for survivalists, but this one sounds like a band you know and it sounds like kind of you know if you'd have told me that you had recorded it in a room together i would have believed you because of the sound that you've kind of captured on there yeah you know it was exactly the same thing and during the first few months of covid for the first year of covid i couldn't go over to scott's house to record because he's on a medication that would cause him to you know have his immune system be not quite as strong um so I was just recording. I have a little, little crummy recording set up at my house, not even Pro Tools. And mm. I kind of use my phone as the interface for it. And I recorded a bunch of stuff. And it, at some point, it just became clear to me that 
form and structure wasn't where I was at that year. Yeah. 2020 was not a year that had a lot of linear form. So I just, things started getting a little more out of control and noisier and, and structureless. And I think that worked really well. I think if the band, if I take this stuff in the studio, I, I'm not sure what would have happened. Yeah. But I think there's a real sense. The thing I like about it is that it, that sense in which you embrace the noise, you embrace the riff, and also kind of embrace the the weirdness of where Luke is is taking his lyrics as ever. You know, the kind of that he's drawing on this kind of. Well, with both of them, he's drawing on like a the, the, the in a way to my ears, the first one felt like much closer, like a secret history of America, whereas this one feels much more like a British record lyrically that almost like he's more at ease in his own weird world of British arcana on this one. Yeah, I always kind of see it as a picture of a world that's kind of falling apart and all that's really left are you know pop culture D list celebrities and then. The new record, certainly there's a whole lot of things about communists and fear from the sky. So Yeah. And that was all written way before the Ukraine. So who knows? Maybe we've tapped into some vein. <laughs> he is he does strike me as some kind of, you know, strange sort of thaumaturge or kind of, you know, magician that he kind of there's a sense in which you imagine he is kind of tapping into, you know, <laughs> the coming apocalypse or something the music sort of fits that you know with the kind of the nasty kind of organ sound as well in there and just good and dirty guitars i mean it's kind of it's just a thrill to hear you play like that as well and i'm sure it's a thrill to play like that you know as a guitarist it's you know it's it's odd to write the you know there's those few kind of punk rock songs yeah i think those were all done in my spare bedroom to a drum machine just turned up really loud it ended up sounding fairly like a band, but generally I have trouble doing faster paced stuff all by myself. Yeah. You just, you you tend to go for more mid paced things with filigree, but I don't know, maybe I was angry and I just, I, you know, I just had to set up. I, I don't think I ever took more than an hour on any of that stuff. It'd be drum machined, three guitars and a bass, and then mailed off to Scott who would add stuff and then to Luke. Maybe, I mean, maybe you bring it out of each other, you know, maybe you bring out the gnarl and the, you know, the kind of nasty out of each other because you know they're you know that there's something there's something of that in in luke's imagery all the time so maybe it's kind of you just tuning into that you know slightly kind of warped view of the world yeah i you know i i don't think anyone had a real non-warped view <laughs> of the world today. i mean 2020 for everything not just yeah. COVID. you know we had the protests here yeah trump then send the federal the feds in and yeah those guys were just like an execution squad we have wildfires every year but yes 2020 and you we weren't allowed out of the house for a week because i couldn't see the house across the street for all the smoke and there was there was kind of a danger that maybe not at my house but a lot of my friends houses were they had their cars packed yeah um and you're just like and then you know, I think we finished it before January 6th, but it definitely felt like, God, is, what else? <laughs> oh, and then I got appendicitis, so there we go. Yeah. But no, I mean, it, it, as, a, as a kind of, in a way, as a document of the strange times that we're living through, I think it's perfect. You know, it, it captures something of that madness, which is great. British Army. 
That was Peter Buck and Luke Haynes, The British Army on LSD, from the forthcoming album All the Kids Are Super Bummed Out, written by Buck and Haynes and released on Cherry Red. It's definitely, I mean, I don't think, you know, if you're the lyricist or whatever, or the guitar player like I am, that you necessarily have to sit down and think about the times you're living in, but you can't really help but be influenced by you know, in my case, absolute solitude. My car broke down a week before uh, they shut everything down. And I was like, I'll get it done when I come back from Europe. And, you know, four months later, it's like I haven't been anywhere that isn't like two miles from my house. Um, yeah. And, you know, it was like I'd say hello to neighbors on the street and go indoors. And, you know, that's kind of where the British Army and LSD and the commies are coming come from. It's like <laughs> just going to my room and making this absolute chaotic racket. Yeah. But also, you know, but also both with both of you, the, the, you know, you, I think you've kind of nailed it there, that sense of, to, you know, with the lyrics as well, a sense of a mind left too much on its own, you know, and kind of slightly unraveling. Yeah, I don't, I didn't feel particularly unraveled. I felt really calm and collected. And, yeah. You know, I, I honestly, I, you know, I thought, okay, I'm going to write a thousand songs. I'm going to be walking seven or eight miles a day. I'll, you know, I'll do my whatever little meditation things I do, I'm going to be really focused when this yeah. is over in four months. And four months didn't quite do it. Um, but I think everybody found a way to deal with it. Yeah. But also, as you say, everyone did, did go a little mad and, and, you know, and just seeing the world turn, you know, to the far right and to see kind of a sense of, you know, oh, fascism's back or whatever, you know, kind of was not pleasant to watch. No. Um, you know, I think that I think it, a lot of people really had a real serious problem with it, and most of the people I talked to were, were okay, and a few maybe not. But I think it's toughened people up a lot. You know, it's like, okay, what else you got to throw at me? Yeah, the the sense of like, you know, not not willing to not willing to stand for it anymore. You know, it would be interesting to see kind of how everything develops. But as as an album that captures the strangeness of the times. I think it's, it's absolutely spot on. Yeah. I mean, the title comes, my next door neighbor, uh, is a doctor. And I was talking to her, you know, in, uh, 2020, I was asking God, how are you dealing with this? Are you all right? And she goes, yeah, I'm fine. I went to medical school. I've been dealing with infectious disease in my life, but she said, all the kids are super bummed out. And, <laughs> I think I sent some music to Luke and I went, you know, all the kids are super, super rubbed out is a pretty good title. Yes. No, that's, that's fantastic. Cause I'd immediately assumed that that would come, that it would have come from Luke's brain. So the fact that it was kind of came from yours, I mean, would you, is that kind of your one lyrical contribution to the album or do you, do you send him little ideas and little fragments like that? Um, oh, he's the lyricist. Absolutely. Yeah. But, um, we, I, I shared a film of, it's, it's on YouTube. It's hard to believe, but in like 1962, the British Army just gave a bunch of soldiers LSD and filmed it, and it was a BBC yeah. program. 
at Portland, Portland Down, wasn't it? I think, yeah. And it's kind of, um, yeah. On a personal level, I kept wondering how did, I mean, there are a couple of people that obviously had a bad trip, and there are a couple of people that had a great time <laughs> and some crazy, and I just was wondering what happened to those people. Yeah. I mean, I just feel bad for that kind of situation because I, I'm sure a fair amount of them had some serious issues. Um, and then what else? I, I don't know. Oh, yeah. When I sent them, what became can't out can't get out of bed. I just went, yeah, this, this is one of those bummer in the summer songs. It's 90 degrees out and beautiful. Nothing's open. You know, I've been for a walk. It's like, uh, I guess I can get back in bed, but that kind of sucks. <laughs> You're listening to the Mojo Record Club. It's um, I was when I was listening, I went back and listened to the the album that you've kind of brought into discuss today, um, the the Laura Nairo record, and obviously, kind of immediately, I think, well, there's no, you know, there's no point of comparison or line of comparison that I can draw there. But I'd forgotten, I'd forgotten how genuinely weird this album is rhythmically and lyrically. So it'd be it'd be a nice sort of chance to talk about it. It's so just for the. To explain to the listeners, it's Eli and the 13th Confession by the late New York City singer-songwriter Laura Nairo. It was recorded in early 1968 when, astonishingly, Nairo was still only 20 years old. Um, can you remember when and where you would have first heard it? You know, I, at the time I bought it, I was living in a small town in Georgia. It was like 1970 or 71. And... I th honestly, I think I read a review. Rolling Stone put out uh, paperback books of collections of their record reviews. And I think there were two or three of them, and I had them all. And I would just kind of go, well, that sounds interesting. And, you know, if I could find it for a quarter or, you know, records were still 275 or $3 or whatever. You know, I could mow along and get that. And so I took a lot of chances, and, and I... Eli and the 13th Confession was a record that actually was still in the racks brand new. I've got my copy right here, and it has the the little fold-out thing that went on the cover that tells you who she is, because there's not really any information on the record, uh, front cover. Um, and it was it's, it's a record that still is really moving to me, because it's really emotional, but I can't really understand where the emotion comes from. Yeah. And it's totally in code. There's a lot of reference to the devil and the captain. I know there's drug references in there. I don't know if it's personal or about other people. But musically, it's a stunning record of amazing songs that don't follow any preset pattern that change tempo and change key. And it's... I mean, I'm, I've played with that record for hundreds of people. And, of course, and nowadays, most people, I think, know who she is that listen to music like we do. But, you know, there were there were years where you just put it on and people go, what the hell is this? <laughs> it's like, and the answer is, well, you know, this is Laura Nero and there's nothing else like it. Do you, can I just check, do you, do you is it pronounced Nero or Nairo? I believe it's Nero because she her name was N-I-G-R-O. All right, okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna revert to Nero now for for authenticity purposes. Better, but that's what I think. And yeah, so I was listening to it, and I was thinking, well, you know, 
because the what's fascinating about it is when it begins you kind of think you've got a measure of it you kind of know that she's like the let me just get the the tracks in front of me the the first three tracks you've got lucky and Lou and sweet blindness and there she's kind of playing around with soul ideas and you can hear a bit of motown in there as well but then you've kind of and a bit of r&b but then you've got kind of pop and then you've got jazz rhythms and you can hear kind of broadway show tunes and gospel and she's just you know bringing in all these different ideas and obviously kind of i think it's really sympathetically produced because the what's the name of the is it charlie colello was the producer is it but he obviously brought in people like zoot sims and, and joe farrell to play on it so he could he could obviously hear what she's doing with um all these different kind of rhythms and and, and, and changes in kind of time signatures as well i mean as a musician listening to it, because you said kind of that, that it's almost like there's something quite cryptic and there's a puzzle about it. Do you sit down and try and think, figure out what is she doing here? How has she written this? Is it something that still kind of beguile, beguiles you in terms of kind of how it's assembled? Yeah, you can't really count on it going from point A to point B. No. Even, you know, even verses that are similar are different tempos later in the song. Yeah. It definitely, I, you'd have to have gotten jazz musicians mostly, you know, to play on that. I think Jimmy Vivino, who uh, worked with Conan O'Brien, and he's, he played with Laurie Nero, and I just was quizzing him years ago. I was like, well, what was that like? What was she like to play with? And he has, she's the only real artist I've ever played with. And, you know, he's like a big-time singer. Yeah. And... Uh, he just said she just lived it and breathed it. It was real. She, he goes, it was unbelievable. So how that 20-year-old kid got all these 40-year-old jazz musicians to play this stuff that, you know, it's complicated, but it also in some ways doesn't make... It doesn't make sense in a jazz way either. No. It's, it's completely as if there's some emotional undertow that's just setting the song up in this way that doesn't have to make literal sense. Um, who was it? Was it Three Dog Night who covered Eli's Coming? Who was, who was it, the group who, co the co who covered Eli's Coming? Yeah, she, they, she, they did that one. Um, the Fifth Dimension did... Uh, yeah, Stone Soul Picnic, did they? And Wedding Bell Blues. And, yeah. Or, and I don't know about England, but in America, um, Barbara Streisand had a top ten hit with Stony End. Um, yeah, it's on her. It's on her best, one of her best albums, isn't it? It's the title track of one of her best albums. Yeah, that. I mean, I, I've only heard that record once or twice. But when she was trying to be more of a modern, whatever, like she's in jeans and a t-shirt on. Yeah, the and she's on the back of a flatbed truck, I think, isn't she on the cover? And, and you know, she she was trying to approach modern singer songwriters, and that was a great version of that. And pretty much anyone who did covers of her songs seemed to have hits, except for herself. Which is really weird because they lend themselves really well to covers, as you say, Stone Soul Picnic, Eli's Coming, and yet they're so unconventional. They might initially sound like a pop tune, but then you've got the shifts in mood and tempo. They're really eccentric. I mean, I was listening to Eli's Coming today, and you've basically got the trombones are playing one rhythm, the trumpets are playing another, the saxophone is playing another, you know, and yet 
it ha and then it still holds together as what you might call a pop song. Let's have a listen. This is Eli's coming from Laura Nero's 1968 LP, Eli and the 13th Confession, written by Laura Nero and released by Sony Music Distribution. Tempos, you know, like those jazz guys are playing, they can play and stay in the tempo all the time. You know, things appreciably speed up during verses, and it's not an accident. She's going no. fast, go right along with her. No. Um, and, you know, most of the people who had hit singles with her records sanded off a lot of the rough edges. Yes. I mean, Eli's yes. coming. It's a simpler song when Three Dollar Night does it. I mean, it's a big rocker, you know. And hers goes through like a couple different permutations till the end. And the other thing that's weird about it as well is just as well as it being musically cryptic, lyrically, she's obviously kind of she's got these almost like kind of words that you know you might use in a kind of that the witches in Macbeth might use, like, you know, Surrey and Love Spell, and phrases like, you know, God is a jigsaw, a jigsaw timer. You know, there's something kind of almost ancient and, you know, kind of cryptic about the lyrics. No, my, my feeling always was, here's a really, really young woman dealing with a whole lot of stuff. And, you know, it's like pages out of her poetry notebook that aren't necessarily connected mm. i mean I, you get the feeling that as she's singing it she's feeling every line yes she doesn't have to have you know what that line means and i remember her read her saying somewhere about the album when my mother hears it she's going to know what i spent the summer doing you know so there's an autobiographical journey through the record as well as which kind of as you say she's drawing on poetry she's also drawing on lines from her diary there's a sense in which she's writing about you know her 19th summer or whatever and the people that she met which for someone who's so young there's a real darkness to the record isn't there yeah i, I mean it, i i hesitate to even suggest that i would know what what she was writing about but it seemed to me that it was a series of pictures of a person or people that she was with in that chaotic year and that there were drugs involved and maybe a relationship that was soured by drugs you know yeah and i wouldn't and i wouldn't go any farther than that and other than you know i believe she was a catholic and there's you know and then the back photo is certainly religious in Oh, it could be just a cute picture of like a mother kissing her daughter, but that's not her daughter. It's, it totally gave me a, a biblical feel. So, you know, who knows? Maybe it's just her attempting to give a blessing to the people who listen to the record. What are your thoughts on, because you uh, you go back and listen to the first record and she's singing very differently on the first record. The first record is mu vocally is much more conventional as well. And 
her use of the upper register on this album, which is kind of one of the things that turns people or initially turns people off Laura and Iro. They kind of listen to it and they go, oh man, you know, where's she going with that vocal? Some people find it quite difficult to take and it isn't there on the first album. And it feels to me like what she's doing with vocally is kind of tied in with what you're saying about, you know, the journey that she's on with this record. There's a connection between those two things, but I've never been able to figure out, you know, what that connection is. And But do you see what I'm, I'm kind of reaching for here? Yeah, well, the first record, she was really young. Yeah. Maybe even 17 at the time. And she had these amazing songs and a bunch of studio musicians who didn't really give a shit what she thought and a producer who thought, well, if we could just get her to shut up and sing the songs <laughs> and records. And that's what the record sounds like. And it's yeah. great on it. I'm not one of those people that dislikes that record. But um, given that she, from what all intents and purposes, she ran Eli and the 13th Confession. She had a producer, but he's, you know. Well, I think to all, as far as I can work out, the producer was absolutely in awe of her as well, of just like, and was willing to facilitate and make everything happen because i think it was like well didn't it go did the album go ridiculously over budget like sort of three times the the budget of what you know an album would have cost back then yeah i don't know much about the history of it but um yeah from what i understand she was in charge and she they did it her way so yeah you're not listening to some random stuff like there you know as a musician there are times when i start feeling like the tempo is is accelerating and you just know that that's what it's supposed to because everyone does it and they do it perfectly. Yeah. It's not something that you would go for if you were aiming, you know, for anything other than the feel of what you're doing. In in terms of how she was respected within the industry at that time, have you ever seen those photos? And I think they're from around about the same time of her at, in Stephen Sondheim's flat and they're kind of hanging out together. Have you ever seen those? No. Oh, they're, they're amazing because, like, literally, she is, you know, this young 20 year old girl, and he's kind of sitting at his desk looking up at her. But he apparently, and I can't find the exact quote, and it might be one of those things that is kind of apocryphal, but he apparently said of um, Stone Soul Picnic, he said, in economy, lyricism, and melody, it is a masterpiece. Now, coming from most people, that's, you know, that's nice, but. This is a man who rarely even said that about his own, you know, or if he did say it about songs, he only ever said it about his own songs. You know, you'd never get Stephen Sondheim complimenting other people's songwriting abilities in that way. So that's kind of astonishing, really, when you think about it, isn't it? I'm kind of friends with Todd Rundgren, and he was kind of an Oliver, you know, yeah. I don't know if he admitted, but, you know, he, um, he took a lot from her, learned a lot from her, and, you know, I should just apologize. My dog is rolling around, around on his on her back at my feet. So have you heard any kind of um, rumbling then? <laughs> well, well, Peter was talking about Todd Runger and it's, it's my dog's fault, not mine. Um, yeah, oh, well, you can hear. I mean, you li you kind of listen to those Runger and albums and you can definitely, or I think I can, hear an influence of Laura Nero in there. You know, the, the use of harmonies, the kind of the, that sense of like, this is my canvas to put in all my ideas onto this record and not let anybody kind of stand in my way. Yeah, I mean, it's quite brave of her to be 20 years old and telling all these really sophisticated musicians, this is how you're going to do it. Yeah. You know, she did it. 
Farmer Joe. I mean, <laughs> it's like kind of listening again to Farmer. I mean, how many different songs? That's the other thing as well. That sense of like someone else might just kind of say, oh, well, there's about five song ideas there. I can work that into five songs. No, she puts it all into the one song. Like I said, I always t tend to feel that that no matter how intellectualized this the stuff was, that it's an emotional record, record that you can sit down and say, this is why it's a good record. Because in a lot of ways, the, I, I wouldn't even know how to describe what goes on in it. And I played it for tons of people who just said, yeah, I've never heard anything like this, really. Yeah. And I think that's kind of why it has a lasting power. That, that I mean, I think all, in a way, all the great records are kind of unsolvable puzzles. You can keep going back to them and find new stuff in there that you've kind of not found before. And there's, sense, there's a sense in which, and I think it's certainly true of, of this album, that there's something unresolved there as well. You know, there's something that is kind of incomplete or, or an unfinished puzzle, you know, it, kind of like what she says, you know, kind of that, like the jigsaw that she sort of says when God is a jigsaw, you know, there's kind of all these pieces that you want to put together, but you can't quite, you know, it's not something that you can ultimately solve, whether you want to or not. No, I mean, I think that if you're a spiritual person and you're 20 years old, I don't think, I think you're supposed to be a little confused and, yeah. and distraught and, you know, whatever's going on on top and emotionally, it's, it's kind of a spiritual record. And the fact that she didn't spell out that, you know, her belief system is great. It, it leads, you know, and I still don't know when she talks about God, whether it's her boyfriend or God. <laughs> Absolutely. The devil, I have a feeling, might be your boyfriend, but it might be the devil, you know? And it feels like Eli is, is the devil as well, you know? That's an, like kind of there's, you know, there's definitely a sense of dread in Eli's coming, even though at the same time it's celebratory. You've got these kind of contrasting or sort of mixed emotions. And you're right, you know, when you say it's the kind of, you know, it's, it's an album made by a, a very spiritual 20-year-old. But with someone else, you might expect some naivety to be in there and i don't hear anything in this record you know it's not pious either it's it seems like it's more of a musically and lyrically it's more of an exploration than an answer to anything so therefore there is nothing resolved and there are no answers because it's a kind of as you said it's an ongoing exploration of something and kind of just it's a working i mean that's how the, the it feels if it feels like it has a narrative which i think it does as a record it's like a working through of something, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, know, I mean, not to compare the records at all, but when we were working on Murmur, I definitely thought of this record on more than one occasion, just because this is our first big thing, and I didn't want to tell people what it was we we're doing. Yeah, just listen to it and accept it at the at the level of okay, I don't get all the lyrics, and I don't know why the music does this. And it's it doesn't sound like other records of its time, but that's what that you know that's you want you build a world. I think that's why people go back to a record like Murmur for exactly what we were saying about um, about Eli that there is there is something unsolvable and cryptic about it. It still retains a mystery and a magic that you know probably even you know yourself and Michael couldn't. Ex you couldn't say what it is because you were kind of caught up in that mystery and magic yourself. And it's probably the same, you know, if we were able to ask Laura 
Nero about this record, she wouldn't, there would be no answers because the answer is the process that she's kind of going through to sound vaguely pretentious for a moment. But you know what I mean? Well, I, I tend to believe that, you know, once you get the answer, what what's the point in asking another question? Yeah. And also, what's the point in going back to the record? You know, what's the, once you kind of feel that there is, everything is kind of, there's no reason to go back, you know, and there's no reason to listen to it again. And it was an absolute joy to listen to it, you know, at your suggestion today, because there was so much I'd forgotten about it. And I think so much I'd kind of assumed because she is also a pop writer. She is a pop lyric, you know, she, these are pop songs on here. You kind of, I'd forgotten about how mysterious and complex and strange and haunting a record it is. And when I was actually, when you, when you mentioned Murmur, I was actually going to say, is there anything in Laura Nero's music that you feel has influenced you, you know, in terms of your arrangements or the, or the music that you've kind of, you know, you wrote for REM or, you know, any of the other kind of bands or solo sort of projects that you've been involved in where you think, no, I can hear that. That's, that's definitely Laura Nero's influence. You know, I think it's like one of a million things that I listen to that is in my head. And, you know, it's on the, on the same hand, you could say, well, Eggs on Main Street was a huge influence on me because like Murmur, it's kind of like, yeah, you're not really hearing the lyrics. There, it, it's uniform of sound. It's this world. I mean, it's a completely different world. Mm. But, you know, I mean, when we were doing Murmur, you know, we spent what seemed like a really long time mixing it to get it to sound like that. Yeah. You know, it wasn't some accident where, you know, we, we made things muddy. It's really crystal, crystal clear. It's just mixed in a slightly eccentric manner. And, you know, we had Mitch Easter and John Dixon, who were total experts and pros mixing it. And they knew what we wanted. And, you know, we had long discussions about should this be louder? Would, would people, you know, understand it more? And, and it was kind of like, I wanted to play and people just go, what the hell did I just hear? <laughs> and it was my response when I first heard it, you know, when I, I, um, I think I'd have bought it just after going to see, I saw you play uh, Liverpool Royal Court in 85. So it would have been on the Reckoning tour um and went out and bought you know i'd already bought reckoning and went out and bought murmur the next day after seeing you but yeah i mean because you know reckoning is an album that is you know it's clear you know there are there are sharp points in it you know there's, there's a clarity there are you know it's there are moments that's you know chime like a bell and then you go into murmur and you think this is you know this is strange this is haunted this record in a way that i wasn't expecting yeah, I mean, that's our feeling. We always described it as, as Murmur being our third album because we threw away a lot of songs. We wanted to get to that point where our first record had that kind of, you know, you're not hearing the first time heebie-jeebies. This is a band that has a vision of what they want to do and do it. And Reckoning, you know, like everyone's second album, you know, we'd written 100 songs by then, but, you know, we wrote all of those on tour and finished them mostly in a two-week rehearsal period. And played them all live on our first really, really huge world tour where we went, you know, Australia, Japan, all of Europe. Um, so that record kind of, re you know, is a little representative of that. You know, we just went and knocked it out and left. Yeah, Mur Murmur just blindsided me when I heard it. 
And we found a snapshot of Peter talking about life in the band recorded back in the Murmur era. And um, let's have a listen. It's a fascinating moment in time. You know, I moved to Athens, I guess, in 1978, 77, something like that. And it was just after, you know, the punk rock thing happened, I guess. And there was no real punk rock scene in Athens, but there's lots of bands and, and things kind of occurring. Uh, the B-52s, I guess, were the first band that people we noticed. The Tone Tones, Pylon, Method Actors. Um, they're all doing something really interesting and neat. I guess it was the first time in my life I'd ever realized you could be in a band and not be, you know, Ted Nugent or, or Styx or Journey or something like that. It was just a really kind of exciting thing. You know, you'd go see Pylon, who were one of the greatest bands in the world, and there'd be like 100 people there. Um, it cost a dollar to get in, beer was 90 cents, everyone would dance. Uh, and it, was just, it was just like a fun thing. I mean, being in a band seemed like the ideal way to make a living. Um, it is, you know, five years later down the road, it's, it's pretty neat. You're listening to the Mojo Record Club with me, Andrew Mayer. One of the, the questions I want to ask you about um, Laura Nero, she was, I mean, she was an artist who made her money through publishing, ultimately, not through record sales because of the amount of covers of her songs. And that desire to record, to play live, kind of dies out, doesn't it? And do you think, I mean, I, I kind of wonder about that, whether that affected her reputation, you know, the sense that kind of she she retreats, she raises a family, you know, and obviously tragically she dies young. So there is a sense that kind of it feels like part of the narrative stops at a certain point. You know, you don't you don't have that continuation of records. I continued buying her records. I never saw her live because as far as I know she never played in Georgia. Yeah. But in retrospect, reading about it, she was doing she'd do like a series of Christmas shows in New York. Uh, you know, almost every year. Yeah. And I would just, I just wish I'd kind of thought about it. I definitely would have flown up and watched four of them, you know, but it didn't really occur to me that I don't think I ever heard that she was doing that. It was just something that her fans knew. Um, yeah. It was, I mean, obviously kind of, you know, the, the, the pre-internet age, you know, these, these, these things weren't common knowledge. As you say, it would just been a, it just would have been a local thing for New York fans. Yeah. So it, in a way, it kind of makes the mystery good. I, I, I never saw her in person, you know. Um, I may have read stuff about her, but I don't really know much about her because in some way she might have been unknowable to strangers. Yeah. Um, I've probably talked with four people who've worked with her, and no one can really pin down and tell me what she was like, but they, everyone says, well, yeah, she was a, a real artist, and you know. I think, I, I mean, in a way that seems appropriate and right that there is... I mean, you don't, you know, you don't want to get too poetic about this because obviously kind of it wasn't, you know, it was a real life and it was a short life and, you know, this was a creative person. But that sense of kind of the, the, the albums that I've talked about on this podcast, the ones that seem to last are the ones that retain a mystery, that, you know, there are a, a puzzle that isn't kind of completely solved that you feel you'll keep going back to it and find something else there and, you know, nothing will be totally answered. I think, I mean, absolutely delighted that you chose this record because it was, it was such a joy to go back and visit, visit it and find, as you said, that I, my first response is, I don't understand this record and yet it works. Yeah, I spent hours with headphones reading the lyric sheet, listening to it, and, you know, I understand it on a visceral level. Level, intellectualize all I want to about it, but you know, I'm not certain that I, that's even the point of it. 
it's kind of there's the the religious you know kind of comes up as a subject when we talk you know because we were talking about um one of the podcasts we were talking to warren ellis about alice coltrane and in a recent podcast we were talking about uh, dope smoker by sleep and these these albums that have a kind of almost sort of ritualistic religious quality to them that they are you know that you kind of listen to the record and you enter into that the church of that person which kind of seems right in the context context, context of laura and i right? that you're you're in that world and like kind of you know religion or spirituality the the meaning is the meaning is elusive yeah i did like i said i don't really expect any answers from this record yeah. it's enough to put it on and play it and feel like you've gone from the beginning to the end and that was the experience that this you know young woman wanted me to have and it's an extraordinary experience Peter, absolutely fantastic. A joy and a delight to talk to you about that record. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. You're listening to the Mojo Record Club. You're listening to the Mojo Record Club. And we're back in the room. John, what have you been listening to this week? Welcome back, Andrew. <laughs> Thank you. No, I, I just keep thinking that you've got all these many rooms in your house where you where you've kind of imprisoned my '80s guitar <laughs> heroes and like Thurston Moore's in one and Peter Buck's in another. So who's, who's going to be there next week? Maybe Robert Forster. Who knows? We'll, we'll but, see. It'll be, it'll be lovely. I'll have a word with Robert and see if <laughs> see if he'll come out of the attic and, and talk to us for a bit. Anyway, you want me to talk about a record, don't you? Um, yes. This week, I have been listening to The Car by the Arctic Monkeys. Um, I think it came out last week, actually. But anyway, it's uh, I guess it's one of the biggest British records of the year. And uh, given the, the sort of music I listen to a lot of the time, I don't tend to uh, land on biggest records of the year very often. But I do think this is an exception that proves the rule, really. I was trying to think of some tortuously contrived link between Peter Buck and the Arctic Monkeys. And what I came up with is that idea about how some massive rock bands, the most interesting ones at least, like R.E.M. and now I think the Arctic Monkeys, go through periods where they manage to sustain a stadium rock sound live with somewhat more exploratory albums. R.E.M. did it with New Adventures in Hi-Fi and Up, I guess. And the Arctic Monkeys are very much in that space right now, I think, with Tranquility Base Hotel and Casino, which was their last record from 2018, and the new one, The Car, which came out a few days ago. What they've done, I guess, is work their way from a very Sheffield site-specific take on early 2000s indie via a very highly effective transformation into a sort of Queens of the Stone Age stoner rock band into something really interesting and something which I think maybe suits Mojo's world even better. There's a good bit in the new Mojo cover story where Alex Turner, who's the Arctic Monkeys lead singer, tells the Mojo writer, Keith Cameron, I remember trying to write riffs and stuff, make it louder, but it just didn't want to go there. I think I might have even put my motorbike boots on one day, but even that didn't summon the riff. So a lot of the guitars aren't big crunchy power chords on this record at all. They're kind of gestural wah-wah flicks. And the prevailing vibe is a kind of soulful faded elegance, all orchestral sweep and the odd harpsichord. If you like 70s symphonic soul, it's quite hard to say that, but anyway, <laughs> um, stuff like Curtis Mayfield, Isaac Hayes, Al Green, or going a bit further back, Scott Walker's first four solo albums, maybe you should give this one a go. 
And Scott Walker and um, Curtis Mayfield, I think you kind of nailed it there, but I think we should probably listen to it. This is Body Paint, released on Domino Records, written by Alex Turner, and from the new Arctic Monkeys album, The Car. And if you're thinking of me, I'm probably thinking of you. I really like that. I mean, I like the, it's got this kind of wistful melancholy that I like, but at the same time, there's also a kind of archness to it that allows these almost surreal lyrics to exist in those symphonic settings. I mean, I don't know whether you'd agree with this, is John, and maybe Alex wouldn't either, but it's almost camp. There's a kind of Roger Moore eyebrow raised throughout. So you can kind of accept it on its own terms as this lush romantic affair, but it's also quite modernist and knowing it seems to exist between worlds, and I, which I really liked. I mean, does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I'd, I'd be wary of the word camp. What, what I always get the uh, impression with Alex Turner is that he's, he, he's kind of um, excruciatingly self-reflexive, basically. Yeah. He's policing every word, and he's alive to the ironies of every single thing he says let alone what he writes yes and so and so he kind of everything is kind of everything ultimately doubles back on itself yeah so so he gets close to camp then he swerves away from it yeah and in swerving away from it it in some ways accentuates an idea of camp because yeah. it's because there's that kind of artful critical distance that he's always putting between it and the, yeah I'm not sure I mean, whether I, that's know, quite the sontag well, no, definition I, but anyway uh, you know, yeah i know i think i would i would err uh, more on the side of of Henry James and Sontag rather than, yeah. you know, Dick Emery, you know, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, yeah, that's, yeah. The, that's the area yeah. of camp I'm coming from. And the other thing I like about it is, I mean, I haven't read the Mojo cover feature yet, but Alex Turner is, is, you know, he's quite a closed book in interviews. And I think he kind of, you know, would acknowledge that himself. So I like that his lyrics offer these clues and glimpses of his life and can be looked upon as autobiographical but they're wrapped up in these fictional scenarios. They're kind of, you know, they're code or they're riddles, which is another aspect of, of how Sontag interprets camp, you know. But very much so. I think, he, I think he is quite a good interview when someone is patient with him and has time to actually sit down as Keith did for Mojo. Yeah. I think, I think one of the aspects of Alex Turner interviews, which can be quite challenging, is as far as I've been told, it takes him about a minute to compose his thoughts before he actually says anything. Again, he's policing every word. He, yeah. he's, he's kind of double-checking everything. But I do think, having said all that, I do think that this record is slightly less, slightly more nuanced and slightly less theatrical in a definitely, way than, than, than the yeah. last one was. And this, this record, he's back on kind of uh, uh, kitchen sink film noir a little bit. There's a, there's a film whose title I'm ashamed to say I've forgotten, which he actually admits he's never watched, which was a late 50s film set in Rotherham that his grandfather worked as a, as a driver on. And he, and he actually alludes to it in the lyrics, but it's kind of, it, it's this sort of uh, cinematographer 
distance which he mm. which he takes to the to that kitchen sink stuff which is that he looks at the bigger picture yeah. this time rather right. that rather rather than trying to inhabit those roles in a way that he did when he was a kid and i think that idea of referencing a film that you've never seen is quite an alex turner completely concept. yeah completely completely it's interesting i mean it, it, i think it's a lovely record like I said, one of the things i was um it, maybe it's worth stressing to the listeners is uh, I'm aware that that perhaps many of you, like myself, are not huge fans of early ninety, early two thousands kind of British indie music, and so as a consequence, may view a band like the Arctic Monkeys with a degree of scepticism. But actually, I, I'm always of the opinion that every scene that there's something good can come out of every scene no yeah. matter how much you're kind of wary of it and i really think that they're a very bright and interesting band who've come to a really fascinating place musically and lyrically through through quite a bold journey ultimately and the fact that they've managed to work out this way that i was alluding to earlier of being able to play all the big hits in the stadiums, you know, on the festival circuit or whatever, yeah. and then make these very baroque records. I mean, is, uh, is REM is a perfect um, comparison point. I think I know you said torturous analogy at the start, but I think it's perfect that you'll, you know, and also that you'll have fans who will make the space for that. They'll go and see them live and they'll expect the hits yet they'll buy a record by them and they'll accommodate, you know, kind of a certain artful and kind of experimental approach to their music. I think it's brilliant. Like I say, they just inhabit that world fully without, without, without being kind of pastiche at this point, I think, which is, which is kind of a pretty extraordinary trick to pull off. I'm looking forward to immersing myself in it now i'm going to move on to my album of the week which is um quite different it's oren Barchi shebang now oren is an artist i've been following probably for almost about 20 years since he released these kind of gorgeous alien guitar albums in the early 2000s records like um probably the most famous one is grapes from the estate where he can make his guitar sound like these you know buzzing flies and heat haze or distant rain or you know, late night communications through old radios, these kind of weird suspended minimalist lattices of, you know, buzzing harmonics. But he's, I mean, there we, we did a Mojo um, cult hero piece on him recently. And um, he basically said, you know, he's from the earliest age. He's, he was a drummer, you know, he grew up as a kid with a toy drum kit, you know, playing along to weird kind of electronic sounds that he created inspired by Revolu- Beatles, the revolution number nine. And since 2012, he's been combining rhythms and abstract textures to really mesmerizing effect. He's already released one of my albums of the year, Ghosted, which he described to me very humbly as just three guys playing together in a room and leaving lots of gaps and silences. But now he's also recorded another shebang, and it's, it's another single track rhythmic workout, but his guitar is back at the center of things again, this sort of hauntalist kind of staccato guitar patterns that gradually grow into these sort of densely patterned, densely layered, I suppose, polyrhythms and built by an amazing cast of musicians that include Jim O'Rourke, uh, the guitarist Julia Reedy, uh, Johan Bertling, um, Chris Abrams of The Necks, 
and um, pedal steel maestro BJ Cole. Um, let's listen to a bit of it. This is the second movement of Shebang, released on Drag City Records and written by Oren Ambarchi. Um, yeah, let's, um, let's have a little listen. That's fantastic, isn't it? I love this record. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah, I've been playing this a lot. I have to say, it's kind of I think these these more recent records that he's been making, they've kind of come as a bit of a surprise to me actually because I did like Grips and the Estate and those records a lot, but I thought them as of them as very sort of spectral and minimalist, as you were saying, and and I guess I guess one word that we don't use too often in 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 relation to quote unquote experimental music is groove but yeah. these records just absolutely power along and it's one of my favorite things about music at the moment this kind of, these kind of tight little music sort of slightly jazz adjacent kind of post-rock adjacent improvisational music which just kind of keeps pumping along really I mean it's interesting that Chris Abrams the pianist from the next is on here because that's He's someone who definitely does this in the next quite a lot. Um, yeah. The Australian improvising trio who are, are, are pretty much my favourite live band for the past 20 years, I think. Um, but also um, a guy from Chicago, Josh Abrams, and his uh, band, Natural Information Society, who I think we touched on a few weeks ago when we were talking about Bitchin' Bajas because I yeah. had a record with them. But there's a bunch of um, there's a bunch of things like that, and it's it's kind of for working and for relaxing at the weekends and for hiking and lots of other things. It's pretty much my favorite music. It is right now. It, it's so kind of adaptable and so kind of engaging and exciting while at the same time being quite meditative. It's interesting. When I first, when I first met him, um, I kind of met him at a gig and I was kind of, um, and I sort of introduced myself quite reticently and I said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm Andrew, Andrew from Mojo. And I thought kind of, you know, I'd, I'd never met the guy before. So I thought, yeah. you know, he, he would be someone who'd be, you know, more interested if I, you know, wrote for, you know, The Wire or something. And he was like, no, oh, no, you know, Mojo, Mojo is my favorite magazine. And he, you know, he grew up and basically his aesthetic is, you know, so that's my dog in the background <laughs> is, uh, who is rolling around on the hardwood floor. Nico. Go to bed. Go to bed. Good girl. Right. Okay. Sorry about that. Oh shit! No, the cat's coming. Fuck. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, where did we? Where did we get? To? Oh yeah. So. Um, yeah. So basically, his whole aesthetic is that point. You know, on the White Album, where you've got. Cry Baby Cry and Good Night and sandwiched in between is Revolution Number yeah, Nine. Yeah. You know, and that's kind of what he grew up on. And the idea that, you know, that that's how music can exist, that you can have this kind of experimental bit in the middle. But on the other side, you can have these kind of, you know, points of of melody and and rhythm that you kind of are completely kind of, you know, immersed in the world of pop. And I think so even, you know, and going back even to his kind of, you know, his older records, there is always that sense that, you know, they're not cold, they're not intellectual. There's, a, you know, there's a real love of 
you know, his his one of his main reference points is 10cc, you know, and he was yeah, saying right. that, you know, basically kind of the fact that you have a pop group who can make every track on every record sound different in terms of the production. And, you know, and he, when I interviewed him, you know, he was basically saying, oh, you know, we I was talking about there's the kind of the warm sort of revolving Leslie sound on Shebang. And he kind of, his reference point was Joe Walsh, you know, so... <laughs> There's you kind of when you're distanced from this kind of music, you can think that it's quite sort of, you know, forbidding and intellectual. And then, as you say, once you get into it, it is, you know, it's got the groove. It's got it's got kind of a playfulness. It's got a passion to it. Right. Exactly. I, I feel like we've we've come about this the wrong way, really. And we've ended up talking about joe walsh and 10 cc really we should have started talking about joe walsh and 10 cc and then and then kind of drifted inexorably towards the next and um natural information society and people could have tuned out by then but it, it, it's got but, but yeah i think, it, I think it's, it's you know it's the meeting point of those two worlds which is a kind of mojo yeah. me- it was a kind of a you know a mojo meeting place where you've right, got yeah. you've got 10 cc and joe walsh on one side and then you've got the next and natural information society on the other and I think if you've got an artist who's bringing, you know, those aspects and those elements together, I think it's perfect. And I think, you know, maybe there's certain mojo readers who will kind of listen to this or, you know, read a review of the R&M Barchi album and think it's not for them. And I think, you know, what we're saying basically is, yes, it very much is. It's <laughs> Actually, you're wrong. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, I suppose the key message uh, we want to get across about this record, I think, is um, it's not daunting. No. It's actually, it, it's. I think I can say with with a degree of slightly deranged confidence that it's a pretty accessible record, really. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's not. It's not. If if you come to it with a with a bunch of uh, preconceptions about what experimental music sounds like, which is admittedly quite a broad church, but yeah. but I know that quite a lot of people do have these kind of assumptions. You're probably going to be wrong, actually, yeah. because because it doesn't really work that way. It's a lot more kind of exciting and immediately engaging than that, and it really that it that it's a constant unraveling groove that goes through different peaks and troughs, but it has that kind of serial momentum which just keeps going all the way through. In a way, that's the litmus test, you know, that you can kind of sweep people up their fi- off their feet with a track that from an artist they may not have heard before might be quite forbidding and then just kind of they completely fall in love with it and then kind of run out and buy it i think that's kind of you know so what we're trying to do so what we're trying to do today is make people listen to a record that they buy a band that they know have heard of and are maybe skeptical of and the record by a by a person they haven't heard of and maybe skeptical of but actually we're telling them they're both brilliant and they really are they're two of my favorite records of the year and and i can't be more enthusiastic about anything really absolutely i think you've you've hit the nail on the head that's perfect i think we've reached the natural end of the show you have been listening to peter buck Mojo editor John Mulvey and myself, Andrew Mayo, with many thanks to my producer, Suze Bowerman. Um, look in the episode description for full details of all the tracks we played. That was the Mojo Record Club. Hope to see you at the next one. You've been listening to the Mojo Record Club with me, Andrew Mayo, and my cat, Klaus, sitting on my shoulder. I know, isn't he ridiculous? To use the Scottish word, he's quite a souk. As in, he just needs to be wherever he thinks it's warmest. And sometimes it's warmest on my shoulder.
Now, while it's still warm, let us pour in all the mystery.